Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where our goal is to bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. I'm Rexon Yu, Managing Partner at the Asia Group. And I'm Sherry Ann Anchor for Bloomberg News Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia. Hi, Sherry. Today, we are pleased to welcome to Tea Leaves a good friend, a dear friend, a close colleague, and someone I learn something from literally every day, Evan Medeiros. Dr. Medeiros is a world-renowned thinker and strategist on U.S. policy in Asia and U.S.-China relations in particular. I got to know Evan first during his six years of service on the National Security Council under President Obama, where he started out as director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia, and ultimately served as President Obama's top advisor for U.S. policy in Asia. Today, we are lucky also to work with Evan here at the Asia Group, where he is a senior advisor. Evan began his career at the RAND Corporation, publishing influential scholarship on China's military and U.S. security policy. Uh, following his government service, Evan joined the faculty of Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, where he's also currently the Penner Family Chair in Asian Studies. Evan, welcome. It's great to have you on Tea Leaves. Rex and Sherry, great to be here. Looking forward to today's conversation. Very timely, as always. As always. And, and Evan, I think you might be the card-carrying member of most frequent visitor on the podcast. Love to have really? you back. <laughs> um, great, great. I hope I get a special uh, <laughs> sort of gift or award for that. <laughs> always. You were last with Kurt and Rich in the fall right. of 2020 in the August-September timeframe. A few things have happened since then. So I, I, thought, we'd, <laughs> I thought we'd start with a, a conversation about China itself. We just crossed the 100-year anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, huge celebration on Tiananmen Square. Big speech by President Xi, described by some as strident, defiant. Some said didn't break a lot of new policy ground, but reflected China's rise. I wonder if you start us out just with your view on the meaning of this anniversary for the party, for President Xi as the ruler of China, and how you think about the two of those, president as well as the party itself? Well, Rexon, the 100th anniversary of the founding of the CCP was an enormously important threshold. And I think it's one that scholars and analysts are going to be reflecting on you know, for a long time. So it's early days in, in understanding precisely what kind of threshold we just crossed. When, when I looked at uh, the events uh, surrounding the anniversary, and then, of course, read Xi Jinping's speech, there are two things that that stuck out to me. And you're right, it didn't really cross any major policy grounds, but that wasn't expected. What, what was interesting to me first was the sort of emotions surrounding it. In other words, in Xi's speech and all the activities, what you saw was this incredible sense of ambition, and pride and confidence that was sort of brimming with expectations for the future. And I think Xi Jinping is trying to impart that to the Chinese people, in part because he's really trying to position himself as one of the great leaders of the PRC, uh, on par with Mao and Deng, right? The famous Chinese expression these days is, Mao helped China stand up, Deng helped China get rich, now Xi is helping China get strong. So there's that very emotional component of it. But then there is a political component of it. And the way I think about this event 
on July 1st is that it was sort of like Xi Jinping launching his campaign to uh, get a third term mm -hmm. as party secretary at the next party Congress, the 20th party Congress in the fall of 2020. So, you know, this, there's an emotional component, a political component, but all of it is about positioning China as, as a global power, hands down. And can I ask you, Evan, the driving dynamics of leadership in Beijing, is it more about President Xi or is it about the party? Well, it's always about both Rexit. There's a big debate among China specialists now about whether the trajectory Xi Jinping has put China on is a normal natural trajectory that China would have been on as its economy grew, as its military modernized, or whether or not Xi Jinping was, was a substantial accelerant. I am in the latter school of thought. Having lived through the transition from Hu to Xi Jinping at the NSC, what I saw was a party that expected a very predictable apparatchik in Xi Jinping, right? They thought they mm -hmm. were going to get a, a party guy, pun intended. And what they got was this incredible disruptive force, a disruptive force ultimately from their perspective for the good, um, but an incredibly disruptive force. I think if they had expected that he was going to launch a, an anti-corruption campaign that took out a Politburo Standing Committee member, two uh, very senior members, co-chairs of the Central Military Commission, several Politburo members, uh, notably Bo Lai, and, you know, tens of central committee members, I don't think they ever would have chosen him, right? But what he demonstrated is that by really grabbing the reins of power, articulating this very forward-looking, confident vision, and then very deftly and effectively leveraging Chinese capabilities to accomplish more at home and abroad, I think he's been able to galvanize both popular and elite support. Mm. Does that mean that President Xi Jinping will continue to be at the center of Chinese politics in the decades to come? Absolutely, Sherry. There, there's no question in my mind whether he's in a position of power, you know, as general secretary, head of the CMC, head of the military and head of the state government, even if he decides to step down at some point. And as Kevin Rudd likes to say, it's a biological reality <laughs> that he will leave the scene at some point, which is true. The question is when. And what does he leave in his place? And when you look at, when I look at the rack and stack of leaders in China right now, I think what it looks like Xi Jinping is trying to do is skip over a generation of leaders, right? And begin putting in place those leaders at the center of the Chinese political system whose principal experiences, formative experiences have only been in the reform era. So people that are confident, capable, have broad experience, but most importantly, are going to invest more in the party as the driver of China's future, not less so. And yet President Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party face such huge challenges right now, right? Whether it's an uneven economic recovery or just the foreign challenges, including a more adversarial uh, relationship with the U.S. What does the Chinese public think about this? Sherry, it's always a mixed picture. China has always, from normalization of U.S.-China relations to the beginning of the reform and opening period, 
has always faced this complex mix of opportunities and challenges. The track record, their track record over the last four years has demonstrated that they've been able to build up so much momentum in their economy and in their international profile. They've made some very smart decisions. They've corrected mistakes, I think, in such a way that, that they're aware of these challenges. They're trying to figure out ways in which they either circumvent them or avoid them or mitigate them. The question is, is whether or not they're sort of running out of tools for avoiding them, mitigating them, or circumventing them. And there, and that's where China specialists dis, you know, disagree. You know, for example, on the economy, right? Can China continue to kick the can down the road on certain structural economic reforms in order to keep the economy growing at the same time that it's trying to rebalance the economy at the same time that it's trying to, you know, fix some of the problems in a financial sector that's only becoming more exposed to global markets. So they're used to this balancing act. Uh, the question is, is whether or not they can stay ahead of those challenges. And Xi Jinping believes that they can. Uh, he's investing a lot in technology to do so, to address environmental challenges, to address productivity challenges. Um, and the question is whether or not he has made many of the right bets. And I think that that's still very much to be determined. Evan, another domestic dimension that has struck me is the apparent rise of nationalistic perspectives, nationalism in China. And um, I'm wondering, A, easy question, do you agree with that? B, large sort of wave tops implications of this um, and see, you know, as President Xi thinks about the calendar and the National Congress in the fall of 2022, what does he try to do with, with this dynamic? Mm -hmm. So I absolutely agree. To me, Rexon, the really important questions when assessing Chinese nationalism is why is it rising? And so what? Why should we care about it? And what's interesting to me about the rising component of it is that it's both top down and bottom up. Mm -hmm. And I saw this, I think this became very clear in the last year in response to COVID, right? The Communist Party for a long time has based their legitimacy in part on performance, right? In part on historical narratives, right? And so there's always been a top down dimension of nationalism. Uh, what's interesting is the bottom-up component of it. In other words, the middle class in China, the people of China who feel newly proud of China's accomplishments and feel as if China doesn't get the respect that it deserves. And in talking with my Chinese friends, whether it's middle-class business people or academics in China, what was striking to me was during COVID, they saw the US mismanagement, the European mismanagement of COVID. And what they focused on was how quickly China was able to control and eradicate COVID. They didn't focus on the fact that the missteps early on mm -hmm. turned you know, a disease in China into a global pandemic. And they, they, they still feel as if China gets undue criticism. So the part of the nationalism that's interesting to me is the bottom-up component, and also that it is fueling in indignation in China. Mm -hmm. In other words, that China doesn't get the respect that it deserves. Now, part of that indignation is an outgrowth 
of the classic top-down nationalist narrative of victimization, right? Mm -hmm. Every Chinese in, in middle school learns about the century of shame and humiliation, right? The hundred years, which is a real historical phenomenon. But it's sort of very, very deeply ingrained in the Chinese psyche. And so what you have now is this sort of, you know, sense of longstanding sense of victimization combined with a China that is bigger, more present globally, far more capable economically, militarily, diplomatically. And then now it's being criticized in the wake of COVID about its environmental behavior. And so the question is, is why isn't China getting the respect that it deserves? How much of that is to do with really the Chinese Communist Party's ability to manipulate state media, uh, propaganda, and even now recently, even social media, uh, gathering that backlash against billionaires in order to reform the tech sector as well. And of course, the reasoning right now is national security, according to the leadership. But I wonder what happens once they have a hold of all of that vast amount of information, data that all of these tech giants hold. That, that's a great point, Sherry. I mean, I do think that this, this phenomena of being more um, confident and uh, about China's future, uh, feeling like China needs to it deserves to have its capabilities and its accomplishments and acknowledged, it is a real thing. And there's a lot of support in China for the Communist Party precisely because of this. But one of the balancing acts, one of the tensions that Xi Jinping and the Communist Party has to run is that they're taking that confidence in the sense of accomplishment. And I think they're pushing the boundaries by pursuing an even greater degree of control or injecting a greater degree of the Communist Party in economic and social life so they can control finances, so they can control data. And the question is, at what point will the middle class say, you're pushing too far? The Communist Party, while it is uh, due credit for the incredible successes in China, is now fundamentally changing our quality of life. And that turning point hasn't come yet. No, nobody knows, you know, at what point the middle class gets so big that they start to push for greater political and civil liberties because the Communist Party is, is too focused on control. But Xi Jinping is very, very clear, you know, especially now that Xi Jinping has written about and spoken about this new national security perspective in which national security is broadly defined and is going to be applied to things like, like controlling data affecting the ability of e-commerce companies, you know, just in the last few days, Didi Chuxing, you know, the biggest ride-sharing app, China's Uber. And at what point people start to bristle at Xi Jinping's focus on control and efficiency. Evan, can I ask this, the bottom-up dimension? I absolutely agree between the two. That is the, the, the more fascinating, frankly, in some ways, potentially more unpredictable dynamic that may unfold you know, in fits and starts, but could could have implications for policy and strategy by President Xi and his, his government and the party overall. Do you sense near-term risk in this bottom-up dynamic, or do you believe that the President Xi in the near term believes this is something more that he can exploit and leverage? 
It's the latter. I think in the near term, which I define as the next one to three years, I think that on the back of the centenary celebrations from last week, combined with the upcoming Winter Olympics, which will be a huge deal uh, because the Summer Olympics, of course, in Tokyo are going to be very modest. And then leading up to the Party Congress in the fall of 2022. So Xi Jinping has a sequence of events that allow him to further burnish his credentials and the party's credentials for leading China into the future, uh, for improving the quality of lives of the Chinese mm -hmm. people, you know, at all levels of the social strata. You know, so I think that what we've seen in the last few years is a very effective way of leveraging these sentiments to serve party goals. Mm -hmm. And people have been willing to tolerate this greater degree of Communist Party invasiveness into their lives. We, we There's very little evidence of pushback. And when there is pushback, the party has, you know, occasionally co-opted or calibrated, you know, it shifted focus a little bit. But I think the overall trajectory of greater presence of the Communist Party in the lives of the Chinese people is growing. And there's very little evidence of systematic pushback. I guess the question then now is, will China's neighbors, will other countries tolerate this invasiveness, right? I don't think they have a choice, Sherry, right? I mean, the whenever the US or the West talks about, you know, internal affairs, Hong Kong and Xinjiang, the Chinese just simply dismiss it. And, you know, even the sanctions that have been adopted on Hong Kong and Xinjiang have had no effect on Chinese policies. So, you know, that's part of this indignation issue that mm -hmm. I've talked about. I mean, I would encourage listeners to go back and read Yang Jiechir, Xi Jinping's top diplomat, his intervention publicly at the meeting with Tony Blinken and mm -hmm. Jake Sullivan in Alaska. It's a very short but an extraordinary statement where he basically says America has no justification, no legitimacy to criticize us. Right. And so that's sort of the world we're in, where the Chinese believe that their political and economic governance choices, right, authoritarian state directed development is just as legitimate and in some ways more, more effective and productive than, you know, the Western model of democratic capitalism. Was that Alaska meeting a U.S. miscalculation? No, I don't think it was a miscalculation. I think it was an inevitable result of where the U.S. and China, you know, were at that particular time. The U.S. and China are going through, you know, a process of trying to figure out how to how to position themselves vis-a-vis -vis the other. In in some way, maybe a way to think about it, Sherry is. Both sides are trying to find a floor in the relationship, mm -hmm. in this new relationship, in this new world, and it's taking time to do so. Evan, let me build on that and just ask you basic question. We're almost six months into the administration of Joe Biden. How would you describe China policy under the Biden administration? Is it a is it a more effective continuation of strategy pursued by the Trump administration? How much would you characterize it as being defined by similarities or differences with the previous administration? So, Rexon, I'm glad you asked the question because there's a lot of debate in, at least in Washington policy circles, that 
that Biden is in fact just Trump's China policy, but better, more efficient, more effective, et cetera. And I think that that's just weak reasoning. I see more differences than similarities, and the differences are very, very significant. I give credit to the Biden team because I think that they've been quite clear about what their China strategy is. But for whatever reason, scholars, policymakers in other countries, analysts don't seem to fully take to heart what the Biden team has said. The core idea, the core insight to understand Biden's China policy is it's based on the principle of sequencing. They came in and basically said, we are going to approach China in a very deliberate sequencing. Number one, we have to get our own house in order, right? We forget when Biden was elected and came into office in January of this year, right? I mean, COVID was still raging. So he said, first, we're going to get our domestic house in order, right? We're going to get control of COVID. We're going to run a national vaccination campaign, and we're going to start to re-stimulate the economy, right? And those debates about economic stimulus are playing out again in Washington. Number two, they said, we have to revitalize our alliances. It's a unique Mm -hmm. American strength. They've decayed. Let's rebuild. Number three, we have to reestablish American credibility as a supporter of multilateral organizations, right? And it did that through a variety of initiatives, joining the WHO a few weeks ago, the trip to Europe, Mm -hmm. right? G7, NATO, US, EU, and then the meeting with Putin. So sequencing is the key. So nobody has taken engagement off the table. I don't think the Biden team, you know, rejects engagement, rejects dialogue. Their view was simply, we have a few building blocks to put in place first before we begin figuring out and, and negotiating a new strategic equilibrium with the Chinese. And so the sequencing piece is important. But more than that, I think there's some real fundamental differences between Biden and Trump. Biden rejects ch- regime change, and he's not seeking to destabilize China, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Pompeo and Pottinger were very clear that's exactly what they wanted to do. And Number by that, two, you Bi- mean just, Evan, you mean that there was this focus on trying to distinguish the Chinese Communist Party from China and the Chinese people. Right. Separate the people and the party. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number two, the Biden team rejects full economic decoupling. I think there's a widespread recognition that there will be limited focused uh, decoupling in certain sectors where America is overly vulnerable, largely for national security purposes. Biden sees China as a competitor, not as an enemy. The Biden team supports dialogue and cooperation. There's actually very active conversations with the Chinese going on right now among climate specialists, Iran specialists, and Afghanistan specialists. It just happens to be that those people are the, you know, the functional people talking to the functional Americans talking to the functional Chinese, right? So I I think that there are some very important differences between the two. And I think we're also about to enter into a period, if you believe current U.S. media, where you're likely to see a growing number of senior U.S. officials, state, NSC, begin to meet with their Chinese counterpart. And then there's the question about whether President Biden and President Xi will meet in Italy on the margins of the G20. So look, I mean, as somebody that, like you, Rexon, lived through the early Obama years, you know, the idea that Biden and Xi first meet in October you know, is is by no means some kind of systematic rejection of dialogue and engagement. I actually think it's a very careful, deliberate strategy that 
positions the United States well to begin eliciting more and better cooperation and then pushing back in areas that require that. So in your sense of the sequencing of events, those conversations coming up, whether it's at lower level officials or in a summit between Biden and President Xi Jinping, what would be the content of the conversation? Because we have already seen Beijing, for example, putting sort of the red line being that they need those tariffs lifted before any more progress can be made on the relationship. So I've heard that, Sherry. And to me, that's that's about Chinese posturing as part of this negotiation. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think the U.S. and China are in this process, an extended process for sure, of negotiating what a new stable equilibrium looks like in the relationship, right? Let's both sides are trying to figure out where's the floor and to move up from there. So, of course, the Chinese say it's, you know, you have to release the tariff, you have to remove the tariffs. Of course, the United States isn't going to do that. There might be some tariff relief at some point. I don't have any insider information. But the broader point is that both sides are going to start talking in a way that allows them to signal what their priorities are, to register objections, right, to clarify intentions, and begin this process of figuring out what the four corners of the U.S.-China relationship look like. And that's it's a harder process now because of all of the tension and acrimony accumulated during the Trump years. The fact that we have things like, you know, tariffs and residual dimensions of a trade war and the fact that China is more confident, capable and indignant now. So this process of negotiating a stable equilibrium may in fact take quite a bit of time. I mean, I've written about in other venues that America needs to take an approach toward China predicated on the whole idea of risk management, not risk mitigation, not risk promotion like the Trump team, but risk management. In other words, we simply have to understand we're going to build a relationship where we agree to disagree. We're going to have to tolerate friction and both sides may in fact have to pay certain costs and risks going forward. Evan, you and I were speaking about this kind of general dimension and, and driver earlier, but I just want to pick up on that and comment. You know, one area where I see this unfolding and I see more prominence is uh, specific actions taken by each government, U.S. government, and to your com- your exchange with Sherry earlier, the Chinese government in the tech space and DD and other Chinese uh, firms, where for a variety of policy justifications, governments are taking specific actions that separate our two economic, create separation in our economic relationship. Basically, a willingness to absorb some economic cost for policy priorities that are deemed to be more important. And in the US side, I see that not just in national security but in some reflections on human rights, for example, the targeting of Chinese companies that are involved in solar panel production and surveillance, as well as in the national security critical infrastructure space. Talk to us a little bit about, about A, whether you agree with my observation, B, what you see as the implications, because it, it certainly seems to me that it injects new dimensions of uncertainty into the economic relationship, even if there is no decoupling per se, 
there's certainly a willingness to sacrifice or forego the benefits of economic relationships in more areas. Rex, and I completely agree with your assessment. To me, the most interesting story at the heart of the U.S.-China relationship is how we balance uh, security competition, which is intensifying on the one side, right, and economic interdependence, which is also intensifying mm -hmm. on the other side. How do we balance these two? Um, in fact, it may not simply be as targeted as security competition. It's actually competition more broadly. So it's competition versus interdependence. And I think that that at first blush played out under the Trump team when they talked about full economic decoupling, which I think is broadly recognized as neither desirable nor possible, but rather selective targeted economic decoupling, right? We saw just in the last few days, Chinese actions against Didi Chuxing, right? Right after its its IPO on the New York Stock Exchange, basically sending a message to Didi, we don't like you as a major Chinese e-commerce company, uh, ignoring our warning to you to submit to more you know, cybersecurity review related to your control of Chinese personal data, and then going ahead with this IPO, right? So they get they get penalized. That that is a Chinese effort at selective economic decoupling, in my assessment, because they don't like DD. Uh, you know, raising money on U.S. capital markets. That, that's at least part of the story. But the broader story here is both sides are trying to figure out how to balance the growing competition in, and the growing interdependence. And it's going to be a very mixed picture. You know, in some instances, you have the Chinese government building up its toolkit to penalize American companies who do business in China, either source in China or sell in China or both, who comply with U.S. sanctions by not doing business with Chinese entities, right? The Chinese have been developing what they call the unreliable entities list, so they haven't really put American companies on it yet. They initially announced earlier this year MOFCOM order number one that was then developed more fully in a Chinese law passed recently at the National People's Congress that basically allows the Chinese government to sanction any foreign company that is uh, complying with U.S. or European laws, right? So the Chinese are building up their toolkit of punishments to extraterritorially go after foreign laws that they believe are extraterritorial, right? So to your point, Rexon, it's going to be a much more complicated and uncertain landscape as both the interdependence accelerates as well as the competition. And to your point, Rexon, it's not just security competition, right? It's political competition, you know, competing about political values. That's reflected in recent US actions to ban the import of polysilicon from a Xinjiang-based polysilicon producer, right? Diplomatic competition you know, potentially American sanctioning Chinese companies involved in land reclamation in the South China Sea. So the fact that the competition between the US and China is diversifying and intensifying, and same thing with interdependence, right? At the same time, just, last, just a few days ago, Warburg Pincus, one of the largest private equity uh, firms in the United States, announced that they're going to set up this whole entity joint venture in China to work on distressed assets, right? And then, of course, major American banks, JP Morgan, BlackRock, Citibank, have developed 
uh, multiple joint ventures to exploit the opening up of China's financial sector, which is all good and smart, and I get it. But again, increasing, intensifying interdependence at the same time that you have intensifying competition. And both sides have to figure out exactly what costs and what risks they're going to pay. And I think that really, to me, is going to be the principal story of the U.S.-China relationship for the next decade. And it's really sort of the same story with American allies, right? They have to make those strategic decisions as well. It was very surprising last year, just before the launch of the Biden administration, when you saw the European Union signing that investment treaty with China. And of course, that's not really going that well right now. We have that meeting between Chancellor Merkel and President Macron and President Xi Jinping, that virtual summit this week. And those relations are strained. So are now American allies and the U.S. on the same page? Sherry, that's a great point. In fact, to me, that's going to be one of the critical variables to watch in understanding the trajectory of both China and the U.S.-China relationship. In other words, how closely coordinated are the United States and its allies in Asia and in Europe uh, on addressing the competitive threats coming out of China? And I don't think that their views are identical. And the question is, is how are American policymakers going to cope in a world in which uh, threat assessments of China are converging, but policy recommendations, what to do about it, what costs to pay, what risks to endure are not necessarily converging. And you have interesting um, challenges for U.S. policymakers like this one, which is when America, when American policymakers talk to the European counterparts, highlighting concerns about universal human rights resonates with our partners in Europe. It doesn't re resonate with our partners in Asia, right? When we talk to our allies and partners in Asia, we talk about the, the national security, the military threats from China. Of course, if you're in Japan, Australia, South Korea, Singapore, that really, Malaysia, that resonates with you. You live in a world where the PLA is more present and capable. It doesn't really resonate in Europe, right? What European, you know, military is going to participate in a, you know, naval, a, a naval exercise in the South China Sea? So your point is the key one, which is to what extent is the United States going to be able to you know, leverage allies and partners when their interests vis-a-vis -vis China don't perfectly align with us and in some instances may diverge. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be a very challenging balancing act. Evan, practically, just push you a little bit. What does that mean? Like if you're put your your NSC senior director hat back on for a second. Oh, that's and... in storage, Rexon. <laughs> it's got a lot of dust on it now. <laughs> yeah. It's got a, a few scars, few, you know, uh, you know, yeah. it's, a lot it's of just, hole, a lot well of worn. holes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but put it back on, go find it, put it back on and yeah. translate this this outlook and framework that we've been talking about, right? To practical initiatives, ideas, right? So if you think about um, series of meetings that President Biden will have over the next, you know, six to 12 months, say, both with potentially President Xi, but then, you know, additional meetings and engagements, and, and this reality of the, of the diversity in our allies and partners, how do you, how do you advance our efforts reflecting this variability among our partners and allies. Yeah, yeah. 
Again, what are the, the specifics? The, 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 like, other, the other key question to match with Sherry's. So the first thing you have to do is American power needs to look more robust and more predictable, right? Because nobody, no ally wants to get drawn into a fight with China if they don't think that the U.S. has its back and that the U.S. isn't going to take it down the black hole of confrontation with China. So America needs to be more powerful, more capable. It's a better word, more capable, and it needs to be more predictable. Uh, that's number one. And of course, a big component of that is getting our house in order uh, at mm -hmm. home. And I think the Biden team has done an excellent job and the trajectory is I'm, I'm pretty uh, optimistic. But then there's the question of what do you do in, in sort of practical terms bilaterally? And I think it it means that you have to understand that the US will, the U.S. diplomatic approach will have to be one of building shifting, evolving coalitions mm -hmm. of the willing, right? Sort of trying to build a, trying to pitch a big tent and get everybody on it or, or into the tent is going to be hard. Mm -hmm. I think what it means is, you know, on questions of competing on 5G and semiconductors, you're going to have a group of people. Not everybody's going to be there, mm -hmm. right? You're going to hope that some Europeans and some Asians are there and they may not be there, right? On Xinjiang and Hong Kong, you've got a different group you know, put that group together. And I think it's going to require a degree of nimbleness and flexibility in how the U.S. does its business, uh, diplomatically builds these coalitions and operationalizes these coalitions. I think it's going to require some degree of side payments, right? I mean, countries are going to be willing to pay costs and risks if they believe the U.S. has its back. But part of that means making sure that the U.S. is able to comp compensate them you know, to some degree. And I think one of the things that the U.S. and its allies and partners, both in Asia and Europe, need to explore a little bit is what to do when countries are subject to economic coercion, right? Mm. I think about China's actions against South Korea following the deployment of the THAAD missile defense battery in sort of 2016 onward. More recently, the uh, variety of trade and investment sanctions against Australia. And I think that the more that the U.S. and a coalition of countries, ideally Europe and Asian uh, allies and partners, can you know not only stand in solidarity with a country that's subject to this coercion, but sort of lighten the load a little bit and find ways to reduce that pressure. You know, it's hard because you know nobody can buy as much you know beautiful Australian Shiraz as China, right? Because it's just such a big market, right? But Perhaps there's a, some combination of symbolic and substantive things that we can do in building these shifting, changing coalitions to reduce the pressure. And Evan, how are we doing on that front with our partners and allies? Yeah, I think uh, I think we're doing well. I mean, remember, we're only six months in, so I think we're doing well. I think operationalizing the quad was important. I think demonstrating that the efforts in Asia are matched with the efforts in Europe. So the, you know, the week of uh, G7, yeah. NATO, USEU, I think that looks good, but there's more work to do, Rex. And I mean, you know, the China challenge is substantial. The Chinese aren't standing still. I mean, Sherry rightly pointed out, I think it was just today that Merkel and Macron in France mm -hmm. and Germany had a phone call with Xi Jinping. The public readouts of the call didn't talk about Hong Kong or Xinjiang at all, and with everybody talking about how we need to you know, move to an early resolution 
of the, you know, the China-EU bilateral investment agreement. And I think that it would be unfortunate if the Europeans sort of, you know, just forgot about Chinese actions at home and abroad, the way China targeted government officials, scholars, etc. And, you know, when France takes over the leadership of the EU, do the French just push for completion of the bilateral investment agreement, right? That's what the Chinese hope and the Chinese want, right? The Chinese, a core dimension of China's diplomatic strategy is to increase Mm -hmm. others' reliance, economic reliance on China as China reduces its economic reliance on others, and then use that asymmetric economic interdependence to create political leverage, to push countries to basically accommodate Chinese preferences, right? That is at the heart of China's diplomatic strategy. And it's worked for China very effectively. Evan, I feel like we've um, just scratched the surface in some respects. And it's, a, I think, a testament to the scope and breadth of your insights and reflective in the fact, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, we keep wanting to have you back on because there is so much we can cover with you and so much that I personally learned. So thank you again for joining us today. Very grateful. Great to be here. Nice to see you, Sherry. Evan, thank you so much for that. And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You also can access a full video of our conversation at theagentgroup.com. We'll see you next time on TV News.